The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, thank you for your mercy towards us. Mercy that we do not deserve. Mercy extended to us because of your great love for us. Lord, forgive us for seeking to live lives our own way. Forgive us for seeking to manipulate your scriptures to accommodate our lifestyle. Lord, forgive us for not submitting under the authority of your good and loving and fatherly care. Lord, help us today to be transformed, to become more submissive to you for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. After graduating high school, uh, my parents would ask the children to write a letter, kind of a graduation letter summarizing uh, their high school career, but also informing people of where they were going, what they were going to study, what they were going to do after high school. And so I wrote this letter up and I mailed it out to all of our friends and all of our family. And then a week or so went by and I went to be with my good friend, Mark. And Mark said to me, so Dan, you're going to make collages in Columbia, South America. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you said you're going to Columbia, South America. I'm like, no, no, it's supposed to be Columbia, Missouri. And he goes, well, you spelled it like Columbia, South America, and you spelled college wrong. (laughs) You spelled it like collage. So you're going to make collages in Columbia, South America, until to this day he will remind me of this. And I'm sure everyone who read this letter is thinking this guy would be better off making collages in South America than going to college in Columbia, Missouri. You see, I have this problem with spelling. Uh, And it has not ended there. Uh, After college, I went on staff with Young Life, and I put together this newsletter. And inside of it, I put pictures, and I put stories, and all of these wonderful things. And it's great because uh, because there was spell check at the time. So there would be those red squiggly lines. But there's one thing that spell check does not check, and that is word art. Word art is like a a little box, like a circular word that you put up there. And so everybody's receiving these newsletters, and it's supposed to say the Young Life Messenger, but instead it's saying the Young Life Mess Anger, which must have been very confusing for the people. Now, that was a long time ago, and maybe you're thinking, well, Dan went on to grad school. You know, he wrote lots of papers. He got his master's. Surely he's better at this English thing than he was then. Which would make logical sense, but you would be completely wrong. Um, You know, this past summer, I took a sabbatical and I wrote up uh, for the journey evangelism, the thing that starts tonight, another promo. But uh, I wrote this up and I led led through this with five ladies uh, over last summer. And one of them said, hey, could I just help with the grammar and with, you know, the spelling and things like that? And by this time, I know, like, I'm like, yes, please help me. And so next week she brings back my first week's study and it looks like a a small animal died and bled out on it because it's so filled with red. 
So it goes through this first, uh, we actually have a saying among the staff that everything is a first draft, and I've learned this the hard way. But, but so we go through this and, you know, correct all the corrections, and I bring it to my community group, and my community group, we open the folder, and we get to the first page, and the first page only has four words on it, all right? So you're thinking there's a good chance these will be right. It says, the journey and your name. So we open up to the first page, and someone in our community group goes, seriously, Dan? Seriously? I'm like, what's going on? Your, I'm like, yeah, your name, write down your name. Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. <laughs> what, what's wrong? You are name? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll take the apostrophe out. No! Y-O-U-R name. Now, the reason I shared this story with you is not to show you how completely unqualified I am for the position that you have hired me to fulfill. But the reason I share this story with you is because All of us are in desperate need of community. As much as we think that we have things together, as much as we think that we have things figured out, all of us have blind spots, all of us have weaknesses, and all of us need other people to speak into our lives. We need people that will correct us, that will challenge us, that will shape us. But inside each and every one of us, I believe that there is this insecurity that makes us want to be fiercely independent. We don't want anyone to correct us. We don't want anyone to challenge us. We don't want anyone to disagree with us. We don't want anyone to depend on us. And we really don't want anyone to have any authority over us. But as much as we might push against the need for connectedness, The reality is God has created us for community. He's created us to be connected to one another. In the 19th century, French writer Stendhal Stendhal put it this way. He said, one can acquire everything in solitude except character. To which I would also add good English. American novelist Wendell Berry Put it this way, he says, people use drugs, legal and illegal, because their lives are intolerably painful. We need drugs, apparently, because we have lost each other. And then finally, John Donne, 16th century poet, famously said, no man is an island. Um, In my 20 years of ministry experience, and maybe Pastor Chad would agree with this, I can honestly say that that in my experience, the most destructive thing to people is their desire for independence. The desire to be independent from God, the desire to be independent from God's word, and their desire to be independent from God's church, God's community. Isolation and autonomy and rebellion run together and it creates brokenness all over. It creates broken families. It creates broken churches. And to be honest, it creates very broken people. Now, to be clear, there is some forms of independence that are very good, right? Like, I'm glad that my kids can now tie their shoes. That's a good independence. No longer do we just have to shop for Velcro shoes, right? I'm glad they're independent in that way. But when it comes to your character, when it comes to your soul, when it comes to growth, When it comes to the mission of God, all of us, without exception, need to be connected. We need community, both us individually with one another, but us as a church with other churches. And so today we're going to look at 
the early church. And we're going to see how important it was to be connected. If you would open up to Acts chapter 11, it will be page 919 in the Red Bible and page 1193 in the Children's Bible. If you notice, we now have Bibles in the chairs in front of you, which is really cool and exciting. Um, If you don't own a Bible, that is for you to keep. We love when Bibles disappear. And so if you don't own a Bible, please take that with you. The book of Acts, which we're going through, is the story of the beginning of the church and how the church operates this week. We continue to see um, the inside workings of the church and its connectedness through uh, geographical boundaries and ethnic boundaries. And what I want to ask today is why? Why is it so important that we are connected to one another? Why is it so important that people are connected to the church? And why is it so important that this local church is connected to a bigger church? And so we're going to see three reasons why connection is so vitally important. And the first is that we're going to see that we are connected for the purpose of maturation. That is growing in our maturity. So just to recap a little bit of last week and set the stage for this week, if you remember, uh, Peter goes to Caesarea, to a Gentile house. And Peter comes to this house and he greets Cornelius by saying this. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew like himself to associate with or visit anyone or of another nation like yourself. Now, this is not the nicest way to greet somebody, but Peter leads with this. And then he continues and says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so Peter goes on and he preaches the good news of Jesus and something amazing happens. These people trust in Jesus and it's evident as we'll talk about very soon, but they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Peter stays and he teaches them. Now, eventually Peter makes his way back to Jerusalem. And as he re-enters Jerusalem and he gets ready to share the good news of what God has done, uh, this is where we pick up the story. So let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, I can imagine how excited Peter was. Peter had just witnessed a miracle. Peter had just had God deconstruct his box of this religion being just for Jews. He had just seen how this religion, how God's redemption was not just for Jews, but it was for the Gentiles, non-Jews. It was for all the nations of the earth. And so Peter goes back that they might celebrate the good news that the Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom of God, being brought into the church. And as he goes back, knowing that they have heard that they have received the word, he anticipates that they will respond with joy. But instead, they respond with criticism. And so Peter begins to tell the story. Verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to, the, to them in order. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. 
Now, last week we discussed what this vision means. It meant that God was deconstructing the dietary laws of the Old Testament. These laws were put in place as a protective barrier for the Jews so that they would not chase after the pagan gods. But it also meant that God was making the Gentiles clean through the blood of Jesus Christ, that he was bringing them into the people of God, which was being called the church. Verse 11. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent from, in which were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction, no distinction between Jew and Gentile. These six brothers, Jewish witnesses that must be with Peter at this time when he's before the council, these six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a messenger by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, that I could stand in God's way. Peter says, evidence of this Gentile conversion, evidence of the Gentile inclusion into the people of God is a gift that they had received that we too Jews have also received. And the question is, what is that gift? Well, as we look into the last chapter, we know that that gift was speaking in tongues. You see, what Peter witnessed in Caesarea was the Gentile Pentecost. And this was immediate and undisputed confirmation that the gospel was for the Gentiles and that the Gentiles were being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Peter asks the question, he says, who am I to stand in God's way? Who am I to limit, to limit the expanse of God's kingdom? And so Peter commanded these Gentiles to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And he taught them and welcomed them into the people of God, the church. Now I want to take a minute and just step back and see what's going on in this conversation between Peter and these Jews, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. What we see in this passage is that Peter is gently confronting their prejudice. And evidently from verse 1, we know that these Jewish Christians were fully aware that the Gentiles had received the word of the Lord, but instead of celebrating it, they prepared to criticize Peter because of it. Now, Peter could have responded to them sheepishly, right? He could say, you guys are right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have gone and been with the Gentiles. I won't do it again. Or Peter could have responded harshly. He could have rebuked them. He said, come on, what's wrong with you guys? You guys know the Great Commission. You guys know that, that we're supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You know the promise given to Abraham that through us, we would be a blessing to the entire earth. You know these things. What's wrong with you guys? I'm done with you. He could have done that. Many people do that. Many people say, I'm just done with you, right? But what you see here is that Peter gently challenges them with the truth that he had witnessed. Just as God had gently challenged Peter in Joppa with his prejudice, Peter is now gently challenging those of the circumcision party in Jerusalem. And we see the response of 
his courageous challenge. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You know, if Peter had been independent, if he had disconnected from his community, he would never have had to have this difficult discussion. But because Peter was connected to the church, the early disciples, those of the circumcision party, and because of this connectionalism, God used people, excuse me, God used Peter to help mature those disciples, to show them the importance of the Gentiles to God and to his plan of redemption, to show that Gentiles could also be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that God has granted them repentance that leads on to life. And as a result, it says they glorified God. Which means they didn't only agree with Peter in their mind, but they celebrated with God in their hearts. When I was a kid, I remember on weekends, I can't remember if it was Saturday or Sunday mornings, but I would turn on the TV and I would watch these black and white episodes of Tarzan. I'm guessing most of you are familiar with Tarzan. It's only been remade a million times. Um, Tarzan is a story about a guy who, uh, when he was a baby, his parents went to the jungle and they were killed or something. They died. I can't remember that part. Sorry. But, but then he was found by apes and he was, brought, he was raised by apes. And so he, not by any choice of his own, was disconnected. He was disconnected from human society. But then all of that changes when Jane appears. Remember that? Jane appears. And Tarzan starts, starts becoming accustomed to being human. And his speech is underdeveloped and his social skills are not up to par. He starts saying funny things like Tarzan hungry and Tarzan loved Jane and Tarzan thirsty. And so as we look at that, you know, it makes sense to us. Why is it that Tarzan is underdeveloped in his social skills and in his speaking skills. It's because he was disconnected from people. Not by his own choice, but he was disconnected. See, Tarzan's maturation was inhibited because there was no community of humans around him to help him grow. You know, I think many of us, by our own voluntary rebellious will, seek out to be Christian Tarzans. We seek out to seclude ourselves from others, to seclude ourselves from people in the church for the same reasons we stated earlier, because we don't want anyone to correct us, because we don't want anyone to challenge us or disagree with us. We don't want anyone to depend on us, and we certainly don't want anyone to have authority over us. Now, while many of us acknowledge this desire in our hearts and we repent of it and fight against it, Some of us embrace it and say, this is just the way I am. I want Jesus, but I do not want his church. You know, maybe you claim this. Maybe you claim, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand his people. The problem with that is that Jesus loves his church. Jesus died for his church. And so maybe you come here on Sundays um, and you don't connect beyond that. I would encourage you to love his church, to be engaged with his church, 
to connect to a small group, to become a member. Because while you stay a spiritual Tarzan, while you stay spiritually isolated, it not only hurts you and your maturation, it hurts us. We need you. You need us. God created us in that way that we might mature one another. And so God has connected us to the church and to the people of the church for our own health, for our own safety, and for our own maturation in the faith. Secondly, we see that God has also connected us to the church for the sake of mission. Look at verse 19 with me. Starts out, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, if you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives his great commission, go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we get to Acts chapter 7 or 8, and we see that they have not yet left Jerusalem. And so God uses this horrific tragedy of the martyrdom of Stephen to spread out the church. People are running from persecution. As they run throughout the world, they are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And here we get to see the fruit of that scattering, the fruit of people spreading out to share the good news about Jesus. There's a map up here you can look at. I think there's a map. Is there a map? Maybe there's not a, no map. There's not a map. Uh-oh. I can't use my, hey, there's a map. All right. Good. I get to use my laser pointer. So they spread, and this passage tells us that they spelled through, they spread up through Phoenicia, which is north of Samaria, to Cyprus. Um, then it later tells us Cyrene, Uh, But what we read as we read on in this, what we see is that the people who originally start going up to Antioch, which will become the major focus of this chapter, because it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire, as people go up to Antioch, they start sharing the good news of Jesus, but they only share it with Jews. They only share it with people that they're like, that they that they that they connect well with. Uh, Again, you see the prejudice coming up here. But what happens is that people start coming from Cyrene, which is in northern Africa. By the way, some of our greatest church fathers are black African men, men like Augustine and Origen. And so you have people coming from Africa and from Cyprus, and they're coming to Antioch, and it says that they start preaching Jesus to the Hellenists. Now, throughout the book of Acts, this term Hellenists uh, refers to different people, so it's a little bit confusing, but it always refers to people that are Greek-speaking. And so in some parts of Acts, it talks about Greek-speaking Christians. Other places, it's Greek-speaking Jews. But in this occasion, it's talking about Greek-speaking Gentiles. And so what we see in here is this beautiful picture that Jews and Gentiles from throughout— can you go back to that map, Cassie, and just leave it there? Thank you. That Jews and Gentiles from throughout the world are coming to Antioch to minister to Jews and Gentiles. And so you see this church goes on mission together to reach out to the whole world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now to be clear, missions at that time was just as frightening as it is today. And so we hear this great word of encouragement. We hear this word that the hand of the Lord was with them. I don't know about you, but I find that to be a great encouragement. 
When I come here on a Sunday morning and I preach a sermon that I think is just horrible, a sermon that made no sense to me, and I'm assuming makes no sense to anybody else, there's this great encouragement that the hand of the Lord is with me. When I go to meet with someone who maybe does not like Christians or does not like anything about the Bible, and I go to talk to them about what they believe, there is a great fear in my heart, a fear in my soul, but there's this great confidence that the hand of the Lord is with me. Now, this is not a promise just for ministers. This is a promise for all of God's people. And so let me ask, do you believe this? I mean, this is a great truth, isn't it? If this is truth, is this not wonderful? That wherever you go, that wherever you go to talk to others about Jesus, that you do not go alone, but that the hand of the Lord is with you. This means that it's not up to your arguing abilities or your persuasiveness. The hand of the Lord goes with his church. And so not only are we connected to one another for mission, but we're also connected to God for mission. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You know, when the church in Jerusalem first heard about the conversion of the Gentiles in Caesarea, what was their response? Their response was to shame Peter, right? But here again, they hear good news that the Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, and their response is completely opposite of what it was the first time. Now do they not just uh, hear about it, Now do they not shame anyone for connecting with Gentiles? But here we actually see that they sent Barnabas. Now Barnabas was an amazing man. In this passage, it even says Barnabas was a great guy. Where is it? Verse um, 24, it says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Then Acts 4, we read about how Barnabas sold his land. And he took all of the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet for the good of the church. Barnabas was actually not his real name. His real name was Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname given to him. See, Barnabas means son of encouragement. This was a nickname that the apostles gave to him because Barnabas was an encourager. Have you ever been around an encourager? Do you know how life-giving it is to be around someone who gives encouragement? I mean, I've heard it said that we can live on a good encouragement for about a week, right? encouraging is so life-giving. And so the reason why I want to point this out is because sometimes I think we read these passages and we forget that these are real people with real relationships that really loved each other. I mean, if you had a Barnabas in your life, if you had someone that is a great encourager to your soul and they were sent away, how heartbroken would you be? But what is so amazing about this passage is that the church in Jerusalem did not simply let Barnabas go up to Antioch where the church in Jerusalem actually sent Barnabas away. And I'm sure 
I'm sure as they sent Barnabas away, because these were real people with real relationships, that they sent him away with tears. Tears of sadness to see this man that they love and care for go away, but also tears of joy as he goes to extend God's mission. Now this passage is extremely timely for our congregation, isn't it? You know, we've talked about over the past two weeks how we are seeking to plant a church on the east side of Green Bay next year and how we believe that God is calling Pastor Chad and Bliss to go and plant that church. I know many of you love Pastor Chad and Bliss very deeply and their children. Uh, You have been ministered to them deeply through many spheres, whether it be counseling or Awana or just uh, friendship. And But what we are doing here is we are sending away one of God's greatest gifts to this church. We are sending away the second greatest singing pastor at this church. <laughs> and we are sending him away, not because we don't love him, but because we love Christ's church. Because we are called together for the mission of God. You know, there will be a day coming up where Pastor Chad will stand up here and bliss and his family and probably some of you called to be a part of that mission. And it will be simultaneously one of the worst days of my ministry and one of the best days of my ministry. It will be simultaneously one of the worst days for this church and one of the best days of this church because we will cry. We will cry tears of joy that God's mission is going forth. But we also cry tears of sadness because we know that we will no longer see our friends every week. And I would just say this sadness is appropriate and it is even beautiful to the Lord. It is good to be sad, but it is also good to be joyful knowing that God's kingdom and God's family is growing. Let me illustrate it this way. My daughter Carissa is seven years old and I have a picture of her up here. That's my daughter Carissa. (laughs) This is on... uh, This was on Easter a few years ago. We went to a friend's house and nothing says Easter like a pretty pink dress, a purse, a baby, and a shotgun, right? (laughs) But this is my daughter, Carissa, little Annie Oakley. And, um, and you know, Chris and I, uh, (laughs) Chris and I have a wonderful relationship with one another. Uh, I come home and she'll say, hey, Pastor Dan. And I'll say, hey, congregant Carissa, right? And I love it. There are so many times where we sit by the fire and we cuddle, say nothing at all, just enjoy one another's presence. And most nights when she's in bed and I'm tucking her in, I will come up to her and I will say, who's my favorite daughter? She'll say, I am, with a big smile. Who's your favorite daddy? You are. As happy as this is, I know that someday there's going to be a chump, right? (laughs) An unworthy chump that's going to come and say, hey, I'd like to date your daughter. And after I forgive him for being a chump, I might say, okay. And then there'll be another day where that chump will come back and say, I love your daughter. I want to marry her. And again, after I put my shotgun away, I will say, This is right. This is good. It grows the family. And then there will be that day when I, when I give her hand into his hand and I take her from being underneath me and my loving care to under his loving care. And it will be 
simultaneously one of the most painful and one of the most wonderful days in my life. And there will be tears, tears of pain and tears of joy as I hand my daughter off to this chump, right? (laughs) You see, tears of pain and joy are not bad tears. They're probably the most wonderful tears. Now, Pastor Chad's here for another year, so please don't. But there will be a day where we send them off, and there will be tears. Tears of sadness, tears of joy. But we know that it is good, that it is right, and that it's necessary for growing the family of God. And so God's desire is that we would be connected to his church, connected for maturation in the faith, connected for mission to the world, and finally connected for mercy to the church. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This event is describing something that probably took place over a couple of years. There was a famine that lasted several years, but it hit uh, most home in Judea in 46 AD. There was a great drought. And so the church in Antioch had determined to pool their resources as much as they had ability to and to send their resources to Judea and more specifically to Jerusalem, we read later. And the question is, why? I mean, why would any of us give sacrificially? Why would any of us extend mercy? Why would they to a people that they had probably never met? And let me give you the answer very succinctly and then unpack it. They were able to give mercy simply because they had first received mercy. You see, we can only give mercy to the degree that we have experienced it ourselves. The church in Antioch had received mercy from the church in Judea, not when they sent money, but when they sent Barnabas, that great encourager. Jerusalem and Antioch churches also received a greater mercy, the same mercy that we received, the mercy of God. You see, when we were stewing in our own rebellion, in our own isolations, in our own independence, when we did not want God to correct us or to change us or to disagree with us or to have authority over us, when we did not want to depend on God for our support or for our salvation, God demonstrated mercy towards us by sending to us the great church planter, the great Barnabas. You see, the word sent to describe the apostles in sending off Barnabas is also used to describe of what God did when he sent his great mercy to us. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says this, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What is this? This is the mercy of God. God demonstrates his mercy towards us that in our rebellion, in our independence, that he sent away his son to this world to claim us as his own, to die on the cross for our sins, and to raise, 
to give us newness of life so that we can now be connected to God for all eternity. And so God sent us the church planter, the church creator, Jesus Christ. But he also sent us the encourager, the Barnabas, the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 continues in Galatians 4 and says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, why can we show extraordinary mercy to those who don't deserve it? Why can we show extraordinary mercy to people who have made poor decisions in their life and are now suffering the consequences of it? Why can we show extraordinary mercy to our family members who get on our nerves? Why can we show extraordinary mercy to people that we have never met in another part of the world? Why can we extend such great mercy? Because we have experienced a greater mercy. We have experienced the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And this mercy is not only granted for us to receive, but we are called to be captured by this mercy. Many of you are probably familiar with the story of Les Miserables. Again, another one of those stories like Tarzan that's been remade many, many times. It's obviously struck a chord with the human soul. Um, you're probably familiar with the, the major part of it. There's this man, Jean Valjean, who was a prisoner, who was hardened, who was angry. He gets out of prison after 19 years. He's looking for somebody to extend him mercy. Everywhere he goes, he is turned down, right? No one wants to extend this man mercy. But then he comes to the bishop's house. And the bishop welcomes him in and gives him a place to stay. And how does Jean Valjean repay him for that? He steals from him. He steals his silver and he runs off in the middle of the night. Well, the police catch him and they bring him back and they say, here he is. He has your silver. He's stolen it, right? And the bishop does something that catches everyone off guard. The bishop extends mercy. He says, no, no, no. He did not steal those. I gave them to him. In fact, he also forgot to take the candlesticks. I think it was candlesticks, right? And so he shows mercy upon mercy. And then Jean Valjean goes on and he is captured by mercy. He is transformed by mercy. And he goes on to take, if I remember correctly, care for a, a prostitute who is dying and care for her son who is, who is going to be orphaned soon. You see, he was so transformed by mercy that he was able to extend mercy. But you know what? Something that you may not know is the bishop too himself was transformed by mercy to be an agent of mercy. Earlier in the book, this is all in a blog, by the way, by Tony Ranke, uh, on Desiring God. Um, but he states this, and I didn't, I didn't know this. I didn't catch this. Maybe you know, but um, it says, you, you may not be aware of this, uh, that very early in the novel, the author Victor Hugo walks us quietly into the bishop's study as he sits in solitude and meditates on the names of God, names like Almighty, Creator, liberty, immensity, wisdom, and truth, light, Lord, providence, holiness, justice, God, and Father. It says, as the bishop writes out brief meditation on these various divine names, he sees in scripture, he ends with what he calls the most beautiful, the most beautiful of all God's names. And it's a play on words with the title. Les Miserables means the miserable. But this word God's name that is so beautiful is misericorde, or 
mercy. This was the most beautiful thing to this bishop, the mercy of God. And because he was captured by God's mercy, he was able to extend it to this man, John Valjean, and it transformed his life. Friends, you are, if you are in Christ, you are a recipient of God's mercy. But can I ask you, are you captured by his mercy? Does it capture your heart? Does it capture your soul? Does it lead you to show mercy to strangers? Does it show you to show mercy to those who have wronged you? God calls us to be first recipients of mercy, but then vessels of his mercy to a world that so desperately needs it. Let me end with this. This past Friday, uh, two days ago, Trish and I celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary. And uh, yep, good job, Trish. Way to go. And um, we celebrated by trying out a new restaurant, Black Sheep. And we went thrift sale shopping, which is what we do on date nights. It's what we love to do. And then we went and visited with some friends. But on that night, we were celebrating how 16 years ago on a snowy February afternoon, Trish and I took our vows to be connected to one another. For better or for worse, until death do we part. And for 16 years, our connectedness has been a continual instrument of God's grace. A continual instrument of God's grace for maturation. You know, marriage exposes our shortcomings, doesn't it? Uh, Marriage shows us how selfish we are, how sinful we are. But it's also been an instrument of God's grace for mission. As we seek to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. As we seek to reach out to our friends and neighbors with the good news of Jesus Christ. But our marriage has also been a continual instrument of mercy as my wife forgives me time and time and time and time again when I blow it time and time and time again. And it's also a daily mercy in which she cares for me and loves me and provides for me. No one said marriage is easy. Um, If they did, they probably haven't been married, right? Or they're just foolish. Marriage isn't easy, but it is so good. It is so good because it is a connection used by the Lord for our maturation, for his mission, and for mercy. Connection is good. Connection in marriage is good, but that's not the only connection God calls us to. God calls us to be connected to the church. I'm going to skip a lot of what I said, but I would just encourage you this. If you are here and you would continue If you would call this your church home, I want to encourage you to formalize this connection through membership. Um, It's important to us. It's important to you. I know there are different hangups you might have. If I don't agree with all the theology, that's fine. Nobody does. It's a good thing. We shouldn't all be agree on everything. Um, Maybe it's maybe it's you know uh, I don't believe in membership. That's okay too. I mean we do, and we would ask that you would do this if you're willing to. If you don't think it's a sin for you to become a member, this is important for us as as elders to know this connectedness. So that's one way I'd play. I'd also like to encourage you, like, we are a part of a denomination which emphasis is connectedness. Uh, We're connected to the churches in our denomination in the state and throughout this country for these very purposes of mercy, of maturation, and of, what was the third point? Mission, thank you. But this connectedness is so vital. And so I just want to encourage you this week, to ask the Lord, Lord, where am I speaking to be rebelliously independent of everybody else? 
And how are you calling me to be more connected to your church? See, we can do this because when we're rebelliously independent to God the Father, he sent his son Jesus to connect us to him for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for not letting us wallow in our foolishness, for not letting us wallow in our independence, but for connecting us even when we did not deserve it, Lord, for connecting us to yourself, for connecting us to this community, for connecting us to the church. Pray, Lord, for those that maybe are spiritual Tarzans here. All of us are to a certain degree, Lord, but that we would get more connected, whether it be through community groups, triads, studies, or just meeting with a friend or meeting with me or Pastor Chad. Pray, God, for increased connectivity, both for our maturity, but for your mission and for mercy, God, that you would receive the glory and that we would enjoy you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.